The following is a sermon by Pastor Todd Dykstra, teaching pastor of Maranatha Bible Church of Comstock Park, Michigan. For more information, go to mbcmi.org. I know we've been in Romans 12 for the last uh, few weeks. We've actually had some breaks. We're actually going to take another break today if you're uh, looking forward to Romans 12 and just being in that consistently. You'll have to come back again next week and we'll be there for the next few weeks. But this morning is uh, Reformation Sunday. It is, of course, the Sunday before Reformation Day. Reformation Day is October 31, 15. 17. And it was on that day, as you're likely aware of, that Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the castle church door in Wittenberg, Germany. And by doing so, he was uh, simply inviting a conversation on the issues that he was concerned about, the abuses that he saw taking place in the Catholic church of that day. His theses sparked a debate, which ignited a firestorm which has resulted in what we now know as the Protestant Reformation. It impacted the world mightily, socially, politically, economically, educationally. But without a doubt, the greatest impact of the Protestant Reformation was its impact in the church. Significant, monumental impact within the church. Before the Reformation, there was no such thing as church membership. There, there was no corporate singing that we enjoyed today and got to participate in today. There, there was no reading of the scriptures. There was no preaching of the word. The Pope was the head of the world and the church, and as far as doctrine was concerned, there was no debating what the Pope said. And in the 1400s, that all began to change as people began to recognize and the differences between that and what the Scriptures taught. As people began to become more literate and as they began to read the Word of God for themselves and they began to compare what was in the Scriptures with what is in and was in the church of that day. Singing returned to the church. Preaching returned to the church. And under the Reformers... The Reformation was launched. And without a doubt, the greatest recovery of the Protestant Reformation is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That and that alone is the fundamental glory of the Reformation. That that what was found there as people went back to the Word of God was the clear gospel of Christ and how sinners are made right with a holy God. One of Luther's 95 Theses said this, it said, the church's true treasure is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That that is the fundamental discovery of the Reformation, that as they dug into the Word of God and as they saw what the Scriptures taught, suddenly the light of the gospel broke forth out of the darkness that it was in. There's a famous Reformational phrase, post-tenebras lux, lux, which means after the darkness, light. For 600 years, the gospel was in the darkness, shrouded in all of the tradition and papered over by the pages and pages of of church tradition in the Catholic church. And and added to all that was the system of works that that the Catholic church taught. They didn't disbelieve the Bible. They didn't disbelieve Christ. They didn't disbelieve in faith or grace. The the problem is they, they believed in those things plus their doctrines. It was Christ plus human effort. It was salvation plus works. It was Christ plus Mary. It was scripture plus tradition and the Pope. It was faith plus adherence to the math 
or to the mass. And the reformers came along and they said, no. The Word of God teaches us the clear, compelling, life-saving, transforming message of Jesus Christ alone. And the key word in the Reformation was that word alone. And if you've been here for the last number of years, you know that for the previous five years, we walked through a series on the five solas, that Latin word which means alone. And we finished it last year in the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. Five watchwords that really became the, the mantra or the motto of the Reformation. Salvation is by grace alone, sola gratia. And salvation is by faith alone, sola fide. And salvation is by in Christ alone, solus Christus. And salvation is according to the scriptures alone, sola scriptura. And salvation is for the glory of God alone, soli deo gloria. That, That is the mantra and the motto of the Reformation. We finished that series. So what do you do when you run out of that material? You go and find something else in the Reformation that relates And I want to take you this morning into the role of the conscience as it relates to the Reformation. I have preached on the conscience previously, and I have preached on the Reformation previously, but I have never preached on the role of the conscience in the Reformation. And I want to take you this morning into that topic for just a a few moments. And I want to do so for a couple reasons. Because first of all, I want you to see that God used a word-saturated conscience of a man by the name of Martin Luther to launch this glorious reformation that we are the byproduct of and are sitting here today because a man chose to live by his conscience. A conscience that was fueled and flooded with the word of God. And you need to know that before him coming to Christ, his conscience was troubled. Luther's conscience was tormented. Listen as he describes it in his own words. He says, though I lived as a monk without reproach, I felt that I was a sinner before God with an extremely disturbed conscience. I could not believe that he was placated by my satisfaction. I did not love. Yes, I hated the righteous God who punishes sinners and secretly, if not blasphemous me, certainly murmuring greatly, I was angry with God and said as if indeed it is not enough that miserable sinners eternally lost through original sin are crushed by every kind of calamity, by the law of of God, without having God add pain to pain by the gospel, and also by the gospel threatening us with his righteous wrath. Thus, I raged with a fierce and troubled conscience. Before coming to Christ, Luther's conscience was deeply troubled and deeply tormented. And then he came to Christ, and his conscience was free. And the glorious message of the gospel liberated that tormented conscience. And he came to have a clean conscience and then lived his life on the basis of a good conscience. That's one reason I want to take you through this. Because I want you to see how God used the conscience of this man to launch this incredible revolution. Secondly, I want you to understand that a word-saturated conscience is how you and I continue to live out the implications of the Reformation. That in order for us to live in light of this monumental event, we need to be the people who likewise live with a good and a clean conscience, a conscience that is saturated with the Word of God as it was for Luther. So, 
You remember the events. Let me just highlight some of the key events that took place in this incredible event. You remember that on October 31, 1517 is when he pounded those theses into the door of that church in Wittenberg. But equally important is what happened in the years subsequent to that. Between 1517 and 1520, the rift between Luther and the Pope continued to grow monumentally. For those three years, there was great conflict between Luther and the Pope, such that in the summer of 1520, the Pope issued an edict, a bull, that was called, a document that began with these words. It said, Arise, O Lord, and judge your cause. A wild boar has invaded your vineyard. That's what the Pope thought of Luther, a wild boar running around wreaking havoc in the church. He deemed Luther's teachings heretical and scandalous and false. He gave him 60 days to repent or be excommunicated. And as soon as Luther received that papal bull, he burned it in an act of defiance. So in January 1521, the Pope excommunicated Luther from the Catholic Church and ordered him to stand before a church council at the Diet of Worms. It looks like Diet of Worms, which is not how it's pronounced. It's the Diet of Worms. And there, Luther was expecting a debate. He was expecting to come and dialogue and discuss and debate the issues that he had raised against the Catholic Church. And when he arrived, there was no debate. There was no dialogue. There were two questions. Question number one, are these your writings? To which he said yes. Question number two, will you recant? And suddenly his conscience became very active. And he had a decision to make. Was he going to cave under the pressure? And was he going to cave under the threat of excommunication and possibly the taking of his life? Or would he stand by his conscience? And it was a moment in his soul where he had to wrestle. And so he asked for an extension of time. And he came back that night. He wrestled through it and came back the next day. And you remember those famous words. Since then, your majesty and your lordships desire a simple reply. I will answer without horns and without teeth unless I am convinced by the scripture and plain reason. I do not accept the authority of popes and councils, for they have contradicted each other. My conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot recant and I will not recant anything, for to go against conscience is neither safe nor right. Here I stand. I can do no other. God help me. And with those words, the most monumental event in church history was launched because one man chose to listen to his conscience. Is your conscience that captive to the Word of God? Is your conscience so flooded with the truth of Scripture that when you see error, and you see sin, you're willing to stand against it? Why is this so important? It's important because the conscience that God has graciously given you is a gift from Him to help you discern between right and wrong, to evaluate truth from error. This is God's moral guide to you. And I want to take a few moments this morning to define it. I want to give you then two paths that you have a choice to make regarding those two paths, regarding your conscience. And then I want to close with a couple implications. And so if you're new with us, you just need to know we normally work through a passage this morning. It's more topical and we're dealing with this issue of the conscience. But I want to give you, first of all, a definition. What is the conscience? 
Your conscience is this. It is the faculty within human beings that assesses what is good and what is bad in us. That's your conscience. It is this faculty within human beings that assesses what is good and what is bad in us. The word conscience literally means with knowledge. And your conscience is this moral guide that enables you to have a knowledge of yourself as it relates to what is right and wrong. It is this internal moral compass. It is a built-in ethical code. It is a moral consciousness that on the one hand warns you when you're doing something wrong and on the other hand affirms you when you're doing something right. That is what your conscience does. It is your soul's security system. It tells you when things are all right and it tells you when something is wrong. That's God's gift to you. Every person has a conscience. Men, women, young, old, believers, unbelievers, it doesn't matter. You have a conscience. I want you to turn to Romans chapter 2. And we're just going to do a little Bible study this morning on this issue. Romans chapter 2, starting in verses 14 and 15. Probably the best definition or explanation of the conscience anywhere in the Scriptures. Romans chapter 2, Paul is writing about how all people are condemned before a holy God. And in chapter 2, he's talking about how Gentiles are condemned before a holy God. And he says in verses 14 and 15, Romans chapter 2, that when Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, these not having the law are a law to themselves. Now stop right there. He is saying that there are people who do not have the Word of God, who are not exposed to the truth of the Scriptures. There are people who do not have the written Word of God before them, and yet those people still have an awareness of what's right and wrong. That there is within every single person this law, and he tells us in verse 15 what it is. Verse 15, he says, in that they show the work of the law written in their hearts. That is not the law of God. That is not the Mosaic law or the scriptures. That is not the law he's talking about here. He's talking about the fact that God has written this, this code or this law, this moral law on their hearts. How? Verse 15, their conscience bearing witness in their thoughts, alternately accusing or else defending them. Your conscience is your soul's witness. Your conscience is that inner part of you that, that is a witness for you or against you. And the end of verse 15 tells us exactly what your conscience does. It either accuses you or it defends you. Your conscience is either a prosecuting attorney or a defense attorney. Your conscience either is a prosecuting attorney in that when it, it brings charges against you when you are in sin and you're doing something that you clearly know to be wrong, your conscience then goes into actions and begins to confront you as a prosecutor was would. But your conscience also acts like a defense attorney. When you're doing things right, when you're doing things that are proper, when you're, when you're honoring the Lord, then your, your conscience is then affirming that and it acquits you. So on the one hand, your conscience will accuse you of sin, and on the other hand, it will excuse you of sin. This is what the conscience does. But you need to understand, this is very important, you have to get this, listen. Your conscience by itself is not an infallible guide. 
your conscience in and of itself is not able to make the proper moral decisions if it's not properly informed with the truth. In other words, your conscience doesn't act independently. Your conscience is not this thing that is in and of itself the law of God. Its purpose, though, is to hold us accountable to the highest standard that we know or have taught ourselves or have trained ourselves in. In other words, your conscience is a servant of your value system. You understand that? Everyone has a conscience. And their conscience is going to react to whatever their value system is. So that's why I said even unbelievers have a conscience. Everyone, false worshipers who are worshiping a false god, they have a conscience. Their conscience, though, is tied directly to the value system that they have put in place. So for believers, obviously, our value system comes from the Word of God. For us as believers, we need to be those who flood our minds with the truth of the Word of God. It needs a constant, steady, regular inundation with the Word of God for your conscience to actually accurately function. And if that doesn't happen, your conscience is going to be hindered or crippled or corrupted. Back in 2009, there was an airplane crash. Air France 447 that took off from Rio de Janeiro on its way to Paris. And it was flying over the ocean and at a certain altitude, a high altitude, it was on its course just traveling there. Uh, It went into a nosedive and crashed into the ocean and killed all the passengers and crew members. It took them two years to find the black boxes. And when they found them and they read them, they found out that the pitot tubes, those exterior instruments that record air speed, actually had iced over and there was no ability anymore for that aircraft to properly get correct data on its airspeed. And the autopilot kicked off and went into a downward spiral and crashed. Because there wasn't a steady stream of accurate information coming into that aircraft. The same thing is true for you and me. When we don't have a steady stream of biblical truth flooding our minds, our conscience will eventually be potentially corrupted and crippled. How does that happen? What is the way it manifests itself? Let me give you two paths. If you want an outline, here's where we're going just for the rest of our time. Two different paths that you can take when it comes to your conscience. There is a wrong path and there is a right path. And I want to just briefly walk through you with you through the, the wrong way that your conscience can be corrupted or wrong paths concerning your conscience. And then I want to give you the right path, the right way, the right kind of conscience. So first, number one, here's the first point. The kinds of conscience to avoid. The kind of, kinds of conscience to avoid. And what I want to do is just briefly walk with you through a, a variety of consciences that are described in the Scriptures. And I want you to see what the Word of God says about these consciences so you can avoid them. And then we'll look at the proper conscience. And we'll tie it in with Luther and how he was used by God to launch the Reformation. First, letter A is a weak conscience. A weak conscience. This is not necessarily a sinful conscience as much as it is an immature conscience. The weak conscience is the conscience that is easily wounded. It is hypersensitive and it usually reflects a more immature faith. 
I want you to turn in your Bibles to Rome, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 8. You're in Romans 2 right now. Go over to 1 Corinthians chapter 8, just a little bit to the right. 1 Corinthians chapter 8. And I want to give you an example of where Paul mentions the weak conscience. He is dealing in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 with freedoms and Christian liberties and gray areas. And in particular, in, Rome, in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, he is dealing with the issue of meat offered to idols. You think, what's a big deal? You need to understand that. And that day, there was meat being offered to gods and idols. And so the Christians in the Corinth were, were wrestling with, how do I handle this and what are we to do? And Paul's point is here, listen, you have freedom in this area. It's not an idol because it's not, I mean, it is an idol, but it's not a god. So offering meat to an idol really is nothing. So go ahead and eat the meat. Unless you know someone who in, around you has a weak Conscience. Look at verse 4. Therefore, concerning the eating of things sacrificed to idols, we know that there is no such thing as an idol in the world, and there is, that there is no God but one. But even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and we exist for him, one Lord Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through him. You see what he's saying? People can worship these idols all they want. We know they're not God. So the meat offered to them is really not that big a deal. However, look at verse 7. Not all men have this knowledge. But some, being accustomed to the idol until now, eat food as if it were sacrificed to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. So there were some believers in the Corinthian assembly who were troubled by this. They, they felt like they were unable to partake of this meat offered to idols because their conscience was weak. Verse 8, but food will not commend us to God. We are neither the worse if we do not eat nor the better if we do. Paul says it really doesn't matter. Food doesn't really make you acceptable or not acceptable to God. You can eat the meat. It doesn't make you any worse or any better before God. But Take care that this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone sees you who have knowledge dining in an idol's temple, will not his conscience, if he is weak, be strengthened to eat things sacrificed to idols? In other words, if you know someone who struggles with this area, you should not do your freedoms. You shouldn't engage in your freedoms if you know it would cause them to stumble. That's verse 13, that's what he says. For through your knowledge, he who is weak is ruined, the brother for whose sake Christ died, and so by sinning against the brethren and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Wow. It may not be a big deal to you, but if your use of your Christian liberty causes another brother or sister to stumble, Paul says don't do it because their conscience is weak and it will lead them into sin. Like I said, it's not a sinful Conscience, it's not sin to have a weak conscience, but it may indicate a lack of spiritual knowledge and immaturity and an area for that person to grow in. That's the first kind of conscience that perhaps we want to avoid. Let me give you a second one. A seared conscience. A seared conscience. Turn in your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 4. Keep moving to the right. 1 Timothy chapter 4. Four, And Paul here, again, look what he says in verse 1. 
But the Spirit explicitly says in later times that some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons by means of hypocrisy of liars, here it is, seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron. It is possible for your conscience to be seared. Costeriazzo. Where we get our word cauterize. You know what that is? The burning of something to seal it off. When I was in college, I was a pre-med major and was able to go into some surgeries and watch surgeries. And in almost every surgery, there was a phase of that surgery where they would cauterize the flesh and they would burn it and seal it off. And I still remember the smell, horrible, terrible smell. Paul says that's what your conscience can be like. You can sear it. You can seal it off. You can desensitize it. You can ruin it. You can ravage your conscience by constantly silencing it and saying no and disregarding it and shutting it down and and ignoring it. You can actually, after a period of time, you can ruin the sensitivity of your conscience. Like a scar, if you've ever had a scar on your body and you touch it, it tends to have a a desensitized feel to it. You can't feel like you normally would in other areas because it's desensitized, it's built up, it's it's kind of scarred over, it's it's deadened, it's numb. And the way you sear your conscience is when you begin to ignore it. And you know what that's like. You're sitting there, you're watching a movie and scene comes on and suddenly there's little warnings that go off in your heart. I, I shouldn't be watching. This isn't God honoring. I shouldn't be listening to this. I shouldn't be putting this into mind. mind. And at that moment, you have a choice. Do I continue? Do I resist and reject and shut off my conscience? Or do I listen to it and do I make choices that will honor the Lord? your boyfriend or girlfriend, you're together and you're, things are getting a little more physical than they should and you start to have that gnawing sense in your heart. At that moment, you have a choice to make. What you do in that moment determines whether you sear your conscience. And if you continually shut it down and you continually say no to it and you continually ignore it, then slowly after repeated suppressions of your conscience, you no longer are able to feel its sensitivities like you should. And that's dangerous. Leads to the next kind. Let her see it. Leads to a defiled conscience. Turn over just a couple pages to Titus chapter 1, verse 15. Titus 1, verse 15, a seared conscience will eventually or potentially eventually lead to a defiled conscience. Verse 15 says, to the pure all things are pure, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their mind and their conscience are defiled. As you continue to say no to your conscience and reject it and sear it, there there may come a point where you're actually unable now to think God's thoughts after Him, and you come to the point where what's right is wrong and wrong is right. Philippians 3.19 talks about those who glory in their shame. If you've ever come to the point where you're glorying in what you should be ashamed of, your conscience may actually be defiled. 
The warning system no longer goes off. The danger is not gone, but you don't hear it. You don't sense it. You're not aware of it anymore because you have shut that thing off so many times. Leads to the last form, letter D. It leads to an evil conscience. An evil conscience. Go over to Hebrews 10, verse 22. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 22. Let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. You sear it enough, you let it be defiled enough, eventually it can lead to an evil conscience. You ever meet people or hear about people who they can just sin and commit some of the grossest acts of immorality or sin without any remorse, you you wonder how they get there. I'll tell you how they got there. They weren't born that way. Serial killers aren't born that way. It's a lifestyle of continually suppressing the truth such that you can get to the point where evil things don't even bother you anymore. That's an evil conscience. Because for years and maybe decades, there's been a silencing and a shutting down of that soul's warning system. So that's one path. Scripture lays out for us one path that that is possible for the conscience. And obviously the warning in Scripture is don't pursue that path. Don't go down that road. Don't don't go there because it, it will always lead in an inability to properly assess what is right and wrong. So that leads us then to the second kind of path. Here's the second point. Number two is the kind of conscience to exercise. First of all, there are the kinds of consciences that we need to avoid, but positively, there is a kind of conscience that we need to exercise. And as we talked about Luther, this is where he came to a point where his conscience was so troubled before he came to Christ that when God did a work in his heart, suddenly his conscience was clean. This is the kind of conscience that we're talking about here, a clean conscience, a good conscience, a healthy conscience, a sensitive conscience. You're in Hebrews 10. Look back at chapter 9. You're really close, so just look back in Hebrews chapter 9. Where where does a clean conscience start? In Hebrews chapter 9, the writer of Hebrews is declaring for us the difference between the old and the new, the old covenant versus the new covenant, the, the inferiority of the old covenant, the superiority of the new covenant. He's laying out what it was like to live under the tabernacle and the priestly system and, and have the Ark of the Covenant and all these old covenant, Old Testament things. But none of that could change a heart. None of that could clean a conscience. Look at verse 9. We'll start in verse 8. The Holy Spirit is signifying this, that the way into the holy place has not yet been disclosed while the outer tabernacle is still standing, which is a symbol for the present time. Accordingly, both gifts and sacrifices, the old covenant system, are offered, which cannot make the worshiper perfect in conscience. None of that old covenant system, though it provided a temporary covering for sin, it couldn't ultimately cleanse the conscience, and that could only come through Christ. Only Christ can give you a clean conscience. Only Christ can give you an ability to think properly and, and have a good conscience, and that's what he says in verse 11 through 14. Look at starting in verse 11. He says, but when Christ appeared as a high priest, but 
in contrast to that. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood, he entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer, sprinkling those who have been defiled, sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience. Do you love that? From dead works to serve the living God. Christ cleanses your conscience. And now the, the admonition in Scripture is to now live in light of that clean conscience. If you're here today and you know Christ and you've been transformed by the gospel and that soul-transforming, sin-crushing reality has taken place in your heart, you have a clean conscience. And now the admonition in Scripture is to live like it. Live like it. Let me give you a bunch of verses. Listen carefully. And I want you to just hear over and over and over again how frequent this theme occurs. Acts 23, verse 1. Paul, looking intently at the council, said, Brothers, I have lived my life with a perfectly good conscience before God to this day. Acts 24, verse 16. In view of this, I also do my best to maintain always a blameless conscience before God and before men. 2 Corinthians 1, verse 12. For our proud confidence is this, the testimony of our conscience. As he was defending himself to the Corinthians and the people who were laying charges against him in Corinth, he says, listen, my conscience is clean. 1 Timothy 1, verse 5, the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience. 1 Timothy 1, verse 18 and 19, this command I entrust to you, Timothy, my son, in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you fight the good fight, keeping faith and a good conscience. 1 Timothy 3, 9, deacons, listen up, deacons. You're to be holding to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. 2 Timothy 1 verse 3, I thank God whom I serve with a clear conscience. Hebrews 13, 18, pray for us for we are sure that we have a good conscience. 1 Peter 3, 16, keep a good conscience so that in the things which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. You see? Over and over And over and over again in the Scriptures, there is this mandate for us as believers to live with a clean conscience. And it's this, this right here, that enabled Martin Luther to stand at the Diet of Worms and say, I will not recant. Do you have those convictions? Do you live by a clear and a clean conscience. So what does this look like? Let me give you just a couple implications as we close. A couple things that you need to think about if you're going to learn from the Reformation and you're going to practice some of the implications of the Reformation and if the Reformation is going to continue to have an impact in your life today, here's a couple things that you need to think of. Number one, You need to educate your conscience with the Word. I said it already, but 
it needs to be stated very clearly, you must educate your conscience with the Word. And beloved, this is where it started with Luther. You know his story, you know his testimony, how his, his ta- conscience was so tormented, and he began studying the Word and reading the Word, and he actually began working his way through the book of Romans, the very book that we're in. And he got particularly to chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, and he read those great verses about the gospel. It is for the Jew first and the Gentile. It is the power of God to salvation for those who believe For in it, the righteousness of God is displayed. And he got to that verse, and he struggled with that, and he wondered, what does that mean? And that drew him to a point of understanding the, the true gospel and true conversion and justification by faith alone. And he came to Christ, and that moment was the moment when the Scriptures came alive. For the rest of his life, he dedicated himself to the study, the understanding, the meditation on the Word of God. That's where it starts with us. Can I just make the, make the obvious statement? If you're not reading the Word of God, you are putting yourself at risk for not having a clean conscience. It's that simple. Your conscience is a servant of your value system. So to have the proper value system, you must be educating yourself and you must be teaching yourself and it must be the Word of God that frames up your values and your belief system so that the Word of God can be used by the Spirit of God to work in the heart of the person of God and bring conviction and truth to their life. That's how it works. You say, is this the, are you reading your Bible sermon? Yeah, it is. Are you saturating your mind with truth? Are you reading God's Word? Are you immersing your conscience in the Word of God? Are you educating yourself and flooding your mind and subjecting it to the truth of God and the teaching of Scripture? Listen, you've got so many voices around in your life that are screaming for your attention. The world's telling you to listen to it. Satan may be tempting you in certain ways. Your own flesh is at times screaming at you things that are sinful? How are you going to make sense of any of that? How are you going to navigate all these voices that, that are out there? I'm not talking about hearing voices in your head. I'm just talking about the many things that are, are, are vying for your attention. How are you going to navigate all of that if your conscience is not properly informed and sensitive to the things of God? Number two. I intimated this already before, but respond immediately to an active conscience. Respond immediately to an active conscience. I told you, told you about the dangers of searing it and the dangers of turning it off, but I, I think what happens is it's easy to justify in the moment. And you know what I'm talking about. You get in a moment, you get in a situation where that system starts to go off and it starts to alert you and it starts to, 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 to be your witness either for you or against you. And in the case of sin, it will witness against you. It will be that prosecuting attorney and it starts to go off. And in that moment, it's easy to justify, isn't it? Let's just face it. Let's just admit it. It's easy to justify. No one else is going to see. No one knows. I can watch that scene a little bit longer. I can listen to that song a little bit longer. I I can watch that video a little bit longer. And you can easily justify it in your own heart where eventually your heart becomes increasingly numb. Don't sear it. 
Don't sear your conscience. Pay attention to it. Respond immediately to an act of conscience. You know, sometimes I'm asked the question, Todd, who holds you accountable? I think I've shared this with you before. Todd, who holds you accountable? It's a good question. I think some people see pastors falling and they see people falling into sin and in a good way they want to know who's keeping our elders accountable, who's keeping you accountable. I appreciate the question. Well, our elders keep me accountable. My wife keeps me accountable. My kids keep me accountable. I have friends in ministry that I Skype with periodically, and they they keep me accountable. They ask me the hard questions. But listen, I, I can fool every single one of those people. Maybe not my wife. She knows better. I can fool a lot of those people. I can pull the wool over their eyes. I can lie to their face. But you know what keeps me accountable? It's a sensitive conscience. Because if I can live life constantly silencing it and ignoring it and turning it off, I know that eventually a fall into sin is not that far away. So my greatest accountability is nobody sitting here. None of you can hold me accountable. My greatest accountability is the Spirit of God who lives in me, who uses the Word of God through my conscience to help me run from sin. Pay attention to it. Respond to it. This is what Luther did. That's why Luther made that bold statement, knowing that his life may actually be on the line. But he said, I cannot violate my conscience. This is how we keep the impact of the Reformation practically relevant in our lives today. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this just brief, short reminder of the importance of this vital warning system that you placed within each one of us. Thank you for the example of Martin Luther. Thank you for how you teach us even today through his actions and through the Protestant Reformation. God, may this not just be some church holiday that we celebrate. May its implications continue to radically impact us for the cause of Christ that we may stand before you holy and blameless because we have and listen to and are sensitive to this conscience that you place within us. Lord, we love you and we thank you for the clarity of your word. May you continue to bear much fruit in it in our lives and the life of this church. In Christ's name we pray, amen. You've been listening to a sermon by Pastor Todd Dykstra, teaching pastor of Maranatha Bible Church in Comstock Park, Michigan, where we exist to display God's glory, declare God's truth, delight in God's Son, and disciple God's people. No part of this digital file may be reproduced or distributed without prior written consent. For permission, go to mbcmi.org.